This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Hi, this is Leanne Gensler from UCSF in San Francisco reporting for Room Now for day one of the ACR Convergence Conference from Philadelphia. Um, I am going to speak to my favorite abstracts of the of the first day, which include two uh, posters and two oral presentations. The first two uh, abstracts that were posters that I would love to talk about are 0402 and... Uh, abstract 0388. And, and that's because they have a related um, area of interest, and that's about opioid use in spondyloarthritis. So uh, the first abstract 0402 was presented by Alexis Agdi and uses the forward data bank to understand opioid usage in patients with both psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. And in this data set, they looked at healthcare utilization and cost in these patients that were using opioids for their symptoms. Interestingly, psoriatic arthritis um, and ankylosing spondylitis patients used 21 and 27% of those patients used opioids, which feels quite high. And of course, as you might expect, these patients using opioids spent a lot more on their healthcare than those patients that were not using opioids. And so really speaking to the fact that these patients are using more healthcare utilization, um, and we should really be thinking about how we can address their burden of disease. A follow-up abstract, which uh, used an entirely different data set using the RISE data set, was Rachel Staval's abstract looking at the incidence and factors associated with fracture in older adults with ankylosing spondylitis. Now, this is the first time that RISE is being used to look at ankylosing spondylitis, so that's really important. They had over 2,000 patients with AS that also had a linkage to Medicare data. And over a two-year follow-up period, noted that uh, of patients that fractured, interestingly, there was, as you might expect, more osteoporosis, more comorbidity, and a lower BMI in these patients. However, in addition, independently, opioid usage in patients with fracture was higher. And so with an odds of 1.77. So I think, again, thinking about opioid usage in patients with spondylarthritis and in here ankylosing spondylitis in particular, we really need to be thinking about the downstream consequences of opioid usage in these patients and how we might be able to help support these patients so that they really do not need opioids. Moving on to two oral abstracts that were presented in the session on day one, 0544 looked at a novel mechanism, bimakizumab, in non-radiographic axial spondylarthritis. So this is the B-Mobile 1 study, and they looked at 24 weeks of efficacy and safety. So this is a phase three study. This does not have an FDA indication yet. Um, and this is a study that, that looked at patients that had both uh, TNF and inadequate response, but also bio-naive patients. At their 16-week primary endpoint, patients met the, primer, met the primary endpoint and key secondary endpoints. And so that included an OSIS 40, 40% 40 improvement in almost 48% of patients treated compared to 21% of placebo patients. And interestingly, when you compare patients that had bio experience with inadequate response and TNF in, in, 
inhibited naive patients, the response was very similar. So both patients that had been experienced with TNF inhibitors and were bionaive had a both response compared to placebo. Um, and, and so, and then what Dr. Diodar showed in the presentation was actually the B-Mobile 2 study with ankylosing spondylitis where you see a similar result. So I, so I think this is both a novel drug mechanism coming out showing response in non-radiographic patients and quite similar responses despite small numbers in those patients that were bioexperienced and not. Uh, safety was, as has been reported in prior trials, the most common uh, treatment emergent adverse event was respiratory tract infections affecting 7% of patients, oral candidiasis in 2.9% of patients, um, and all of these were non-severe and non-systemic and none led to treatment discontinuation. My only caveat here is this is only 24-week data. We do need longer-term data to really understand the um, uh, adverse events in these patients. And finally, the last study I'm going to present is one that I think is relevant to clinical practice, and that is 0545. This was presented by Cindy Weinstein, who is a, an employee of Merck, where they did a study of withdrawal of golimumab in non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis patients who had achieved inactive disease. So there have been several withdrawal studies that have been uh, published already, but what I like about this one, similar to the study done with sotolizumab, is that they had a long run-in period and then a randomization, not just to withdraw, but to dose reduce on golimumab. So this was a phase four parallel group withdrawal study called Go Back. Um, these patients had less than, less than or equal to five years of disease. It's unclear whether that was symptom duration or disease duration. I suspect it's disease duration by diagnosis, which is really not um, the full course of disease since the median disease symptom uh, at the time of withdrawal was eight years. So these are slightly longer uh, patients with disease uh, duration, which I define as symptom duration. Um, as we looked at these patients, they had a long run-in period of up to 10 months, and then they were randomized one-to-one-to-one -to, -one -to, -one to these three groups, and they were continued to follow for up to 12 months. And so in period two, what we saw was actually a greater proportion of the um, patients that were on treatment compared to not on treatment, the placebo arm, having uh, less flares. So that is as we might expect. And though there was no um, comparison between the doses and uh, it looks like confidence intervals crosses, I do think it looks like the people on reduced dose had more flares than the people that stayed on the full dose. And so whether that speaks to something about the drug or something about the fact that these symptoms, these patients had slightly longer symptoms is not clear to me. Another interesting point is that of the people that did flare in part two, where they were randomized, that was 51 patients. When they were retreated with golimumab, they achieved clinical response in 96% of patients. So that is important to know as we think about can we reduce the dose? Can we stop the dose? And if we do and patients flare, then can we give them the drug back and will they respond? So that's it for day one for me. This is Leanne Gensler reporting for, uh, Zoom, for a room now. And I will look forward to talking to you on day two.
Hi, uh, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting for Room Now, live from ACR 22. Um, and today I wanted to share a topic uh, about what happens after you stop biologics. As we know, um, this is a common question and commonly happens in our clinic. Um, and nowadays, you know, people are stopping their treatments, including biologics, for really a variety of reasons. And then the first and foremost being COVID. Um, infections, uh, lifestyle issues, maybe people just don't want to inject themselves every few weeks. Um, obviously, insurance issues plays a big factor. Um, and sometimes patients undergo procedures where the uh, you know, surgeon recommends they hold the biologic for a amount of a period uh, um, of time. And some people just don't want to take it. You know, they don't want to be on an immunosuppressant um, for whatever reason. Uh, this study uh, was abstract 0427, and it was the COAST Y phase three extension study uh, with uh, 155 patients with axial spinal arthritis who were on Ixkizumab. And they focus on a randomized withdrawal retreatment period uh, through two years. And these patients already re re achieved remission with an ASTAS of less than 1.3 or had low disease activity. And at week 24, they were randomized to either continue their treatment of ixkizumab or placebo. Um, and patients who then subsequently flared switched back to ixkizumab the next visit. Um, overall, 36% of patients who were randomized to placebo never experienced a flare, while 28 patients or 52% did flare. Um, of those who did flare, 82% were who were recaptured achieved a low disease activity, and 68% uh, had inactive disease after restarting ixkizumab treatment. So I think overall, very interesting study and interesting data. Um, it does show that restarting ixkizumab works. Uh, it helps doctors and patients alike um, who have to or need to stop therapy. It's uh, good evidence for, for that scenario. Um, I think overall, for me, it probably wouldn't uh, make me start or stop therapy like that. Um, because number one, the study is only focusing on IL-17 inhibitors. Um, and I think personally, and from other studies, we have seen that TNF uh, inhibitor users, when they restart therapy after a long pause, sometimes they find there is no efficacy. Um, and another interesting piece of data from this study is that 36% of patients who stopped therapy didn't flare. You know, I would say this is not a um, small number, um, and perhaps a longer study focusing on those select patients uh, would be interesting to figure out, you know, does number one, does that um, lack of flare last and how long? And what exactly about these patients caused them not to flare when they stopped therapy? So thanks for tuning in uh, for continued coverage of ACR 22. Please uh, visit Room Now and follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow covering ACR 22 for Room Now. And today I wanted to talk about a subject, again, that places a lot of power um, in the patients, uh, focusing on the lifestyle factors that could affect TNF inhibitor use and its efficacy. And this was abstract 1510. 
And they were looking at what uh, modifiable lifestyle factors could enhance the uh, use of TNF inhibitors in the treatment of axial spondylarthritis. This was a very large European study across 14 registries, totaling over 16,000 patients with axial spondylarthritis. And notably, these are all patients starting TNF inhibitors. Out of these patients, 29% were current smokers, 49% were current drinkers, alcohol drinkers, 37% were overweight, and 21% were obese. Uh, this study found that uh, smokers are less likely to achieve a BASDI 50 when compared to non-smokers. They also found that overweight and obese patients were also less likely to achieve BASDI 50 when compared to patients with normal weight. And they found that out of every 100 smokers who gave up smoking, they hypothesized that a further eight would uh, meet the uh, response criteria. Ironically, they also found that alcohol consumption, uh, patients added a 49% patient, uh, patients who were current alcohol drinkers, they found that alcohol consumption was associated with an increased response. Um, although the, the investigators did note that this is unlikely to be causal, I think this data reinforces uh, the knowledge and, and, and information that we pass on to our patients. I think, you know, myself and probably all of us spend some time with patients who we know are, um, you know, smokers and we who we know are not leading the most healthy of lifestyles. Um, and we pass on this information, but um, I think one of the biggest challenges I face as a clinician is sometimes we discuss this. And I remember one patient, we discussed stopping smoking every time. And one time she just said, doc, how, how do I do it? I've tried patches. I've tried gum. I've gone to class. I can't. Um, and I think that's still an area that a lot of us uh, patients and physicians included need help on. Uh, you know, sometimes we don't know the best way to help an individual patients. Um, one of the things I try to pass on to uh, my patients who are attempting to quit smoking, I think number one, that's a Great first step is initially even thinking about it. And I think studies have shown us that usually when you try to quit smoking, you're not successful the first time. It's usually the third or fourth or fifth time where patients really become quote unquote successful in their uh, smoking cessation. And I think the alcohol, um, although not their primary outcome and what the researchers were looking for in this study, I think that was an interesting data point where they found you know, alcohol consumption was increased with an increased response. Um, they don't really say, uh, for these alcohol drinkers, how much or what kind of alcohol. I think if, if the data shows that these patients were having, let's say one or two glasses of wine per day, perhaps that should, uh, you know, involve another study into really looking into that. Uh, but if I think it, the, if the alcohol consumption is a very heterogeneous group, um, then I perhaps I would agree with the investigators that this is probably not a causal uh, relationship. Um, anyway, thank you for tuning in to Room Now for live coverage of ACR 22. And feel free to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting for Room Now from ACR 22. Uh, and today I wanted to discuss a topic regarding which biologic may be better for 
the treatment of our diseases, especially axial spondyl arthritis. And this was a late-breaking abstract, L15, and they looked at uh, secukinumab versus the biosimilar of adalimumab on radiographic progression in patients with radiographic axial spondyl arthritis. This was a phase 3B study of more than 800 patients. Uh, these patients were all uh, biologic naive um, with active axial spinal arthritis. And they were then randomized one to one to one uh, to secukinumab 150 milligrams, uh, 300 milligrams, and the standard dosage for adalimumab biosimilar. Uh, this was a two-year study. So at week 104, um, the percentage of patients with no radiographic progression was actually similar, uh, roughly around 65 to 66% amongst the secukinumab 150, 300 arms, and the adalimumab by a similar arm. When they looked at uh, which patients did not develop new syndesmophytes, uh, relatively similar as well, um, about 50% in all arms, and adverse events also similar, roughly 80% in all arms, uh, with similar adverse event, uh, events that we know uh, to be present in TNF inhibitors and IL-17 inhibitors. Um, so overall, uh, it shows that, uh, you know, the use of either agent uh, really prevented uh, uh, low or prevented radiographic progression with overall very low radiographic progression in two years. Um, the good news is, you know, they're all efficacious, obviously, um, and there's no significant difference in the two uh, mechanisms of action. Um, I think I wouldn't say the bad news, but the lukewarm news is we still don't have, uh, you know, a, a better agents every time. I would say every time we have a biologic in the axe world or the psoriatic arthritis world, uh, they tend to perform similarly. Um, but anyway, thanks for tuning in for coverage of ACR 22. Um, and feel free to follow me on Twitter at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm here at Room Now at ACR 22 Convergence here in Philadelphia. I wanted to talk about the response of women versus men to treatment in seronegative arthritis, looking at both psoriatic arthritis and axial spondylitis. So the first one is abstract number 1614. And with that, they looked at women with radiographic or non-radiographic axial spa and compared it to men. And they found something that to me is a bit confusing. They found that the response to any treatment in women was less only if they were non-radiographic, but it was equal if they were radiographic compared to men. And I don't think it's misclassification. These were large centers that know how to diagnose some um, ankylosing spondylitis. It didn't look like there were treatment differences, so I think more will come. And a lot of the treatment was with a TNF inhibitor, and maybe there's something about radiographic versus non-radiographic and TNF, but I don't really know. So the other one is looking, moving, and shifting gears to psoriatic arthritis. So it was um, abstract number 1601. And in this one, they actually were looking at a response to treatment with ustekinumab. So to remind everyone, it's an IL-1223 inhibitor. And it was looking as a sub-analysis of the randomized controlled trials in psoriatic arthritis. So the question was, if a man versus a woman is on methotrexate with ustekinumab, does it make a difference? 
And the weird thing is that if it was a man and he was on methotrexate and had ustekinumab, he actually had a better response than ustekinumab alone. Whereas in the women of the study, it made no difference. And they looked at all sorts of things, dactylitis, enthesitis, and other things. So again, is it a treatment response that's something to do with other cytokines, IL-1223, is it just a fluke because it's a subset analysis? I don't know, but I think, again, the take home for me as I go to clinic next week is I should be cognizant that there might be a difference in effect for women with seronegative types of arthritis on certain treatments compared to others. Otherwise, I don't really know what to make of it, and I think more will come on gender discrepancies. So thank you and enjoy the meeting.